Last Sunday, we looked at meaningful membership in a local church, and I said that for a local church to be considered a Christian church, it must have at least three things. The right preaching of the Word of God, the right practice of discipline, and the right administration of the ordinances. And it is those ordinances, those meaningful ordinances that I want us to look at this morning. There are two ordinances in the church, which are baptism and the Lord's Supper. So, what are ordinances? Probably not a word you use all the time. What are ordinances? Well, an ordinance is a ceremony that Christ has commanded to be permanently practiced by the church. We have two ordinances in the New Testament, baptism and the Lord's Supper. These ordinances are commanded by Christ and taught by the apostles and practiced by the New Testament church, which we can all observe in Scripture. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are to be practiced by all churches in all places for all time until Christ returns. The ordinances may look a little different in practice from one place to another, but they are transcultural. They're to be practiced everywhere. No matter what ethnicity, on what continent, all Christian churches observe baptism and the Lord's Supper. They are not merely Western ideas or Western practices. They are Jesus' church practices. Jesus gave these ordinances to the church, not to individual Christians. We don't individually observe the Lord's Supper just with our families or just with our home fellowships. We don't baptize our kids alone at home in the bathtub or a neighbor in a swimming pool. These ordinances are for the church to confer upon individuals. So why do we have these particular ordinances? Well, in the Lord's Supper, Jesus wants believers to look back and remember. To look back and remember. It's a memorial of sorts. As we walk by faith in this fallen world, the ordinance of the Lord's Supper helps us to remember that Jesus sacrificed his body on the cross to make full payment for our sins. It helps us to remember that Jesus' shed blood cleanses us of our unrighteousness so that we can be confident in our right standing before God. The Lord's Supper is the continuing ordinance of the church. Our ongoing obedience is marked by our ongoing participation in the Lord's Supper. Baptism is the initiatory ordinance of the church. When we come to saving faith in Christ, we obey his command to publicly identify with Christ in the ordinance of baptism. It's common in American evangelical churches today not to really value these ordinances. That's to the detriment of the church. And the Bible won't let us do that. These are commanded by Christ for his church to rightly practice in order to be recognized as a Christian church. For example, Jesus commands the church in Matthew chapter 28, beginning in verse 18. All authority has been given to me on heaven and earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all of this that I have commanded to you, and lo, I am with you to the end of the age. So first, Jesus commands the church to baptize those who believe and become his disciples. Our understanding of believers' baptism by immersion begins with Jesus' baptism. So let's look at that in Matthew chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. 
Matthew chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Just a couple of weeks ago, we, we noted that John the Baptist is the last of the Old Testament prophets of God. His job was to prepare the way for Jesus by preparing the hearts of men and women and children to receive Jesus. How does John do that? Well, John preaches the reality of the righteousness and holiness of God. And when the people hear and believe in the righteousness of God, their own unrighteousness comes into view. You know how that feels. It's why at the beginning of the service we sing a, a couple of songs giving glory to God and then we pause and because our own unrighteousness has come into view and so we have a, a time of confessing our sinfulness to God before we move on. You know what this feels like. So John calls them to repent of their sinfulness and turn the allegiance of their hearts to holy God. And John baptizes those who repent in that way. The outward washing with water symbolizes the inward heart commitment to pursue righteousness. Thus they are preparing for the ministry of the Messiah, of the Christ, to come. We have the same question that John had, don't we? Why is Jesus coming to be baptized by John when Jesus has no sins to repent of, no unrighteousness to be cleansed of? Jesus says, For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. How, then, does Jesus' baptism help to fulfill all righteousness? Jesus, the Son of God, identifies himself with man, that's us, mankind, first by becoming a man. He condescended to come from heaven and take on flesh. And he identifies with sinful man in his baptism of repentant man. Jesus, who need not repent, still participates in this baptism that repentant men need to repent in. So the event that actually atones for man's sin, the transaction by which Jesus actually paid our sin debt, is his death on the cross, we're baptized to identify with him in his death, burial, and resurrection. Jesus' baptism, in other words, points forward to his death, burial, and resurrection about to happen in about three years. And our baptism points back to his death, burial, and resurrection as a picture and acknowledgement of it. Jesus' baptism happens at the beginning of his earthly ministry, and our baptism happens at the beginning of our Christian walk. Well, let's look at two baptisms in the New Testament to help answer some more questions, like who should be baptized and when, and how is it done, and what does it mean? There's the story of Philip baptizing the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts Chapter 8, verse 26. Turn to Acts, chapter 8, verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he arose and went. 
And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join his chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this, like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before his shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe this generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with the scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. Obviously, this is a, this is a little different baptism than most. Philip is spirited into the presence of the eunuch, and afterwards he's spirited away. And there's a question, what prevents me from being baptized? What would prevent him from being baptized? What would prevent him from being baptized is not knowing and believing in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, but now he does because Peter has explained it to him. And so then, having believed in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, knowing that he was the one who was led to the slaughter, he was the lamb before his shearers who was silent, then he's baptized. The Greek word for baptism literally means to immerse in water. You know, if the word had been translated, all of our Bibles would say immerse instead of baptize. Instead, the word was transliterated. We replace the Greek letters with English letters, and we say baptism whenever we mean baptism by immersion. The reason is because the common word, immerse, so quickly became a technical word for the believers in Christ being baptized, that it just was transliterated and kept. Nonetheless, every baptism in the New Testament fits the action of immersion. The water wasn't applied on the eunuch. No, he was, he was immersed in the water. The person goes into the water and then comes out of the water. The mode of believer's baptism is immersion. Peter baptizes Cornelius' household in Acts chapter 10. Let's look at that story. Turn over just a page or two to Acts chapter 10. I'll begin in verse 44. Now, Peter has gone... Uh, to Cornelius' house to preach the gospel there, and he's doing that when we enter verse 44. While Peter was still saying these things, while he was still preaching the gospel and explaining the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and life through faith in him, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speak in tongues and extolling God, And then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. 
It's kind of funny because the Holy Spirit was actually interrupts Peter's faithful preaching of the gospel in salvation. I mean, and just interrupts and grants, grants salvation, pours out the Holy Spirit. This is a new thing that's happening here. Peter knew that God would bring salvation to the Jews. All of the circumcised with him, all of the Jews with him who were at Pentecost and received the Holy Spirit then knew that, but they had no idea that God would also give that same salvation to the Gentiles, to people who are not Jews. So it's a new thing. And when God poured out his Holy Spirit on the Jews at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, he gave a sign. The Spirit looked like tongues of fire. And the new believers were given the ability to speak foreign languages they had not learned. And so in order for Peter to understand that these Gentiles are also genuinely, truly saved, he gives Peter the same signs. To recognize the gift of the indwelling Holy Spirit has come upon Gentiles as well. And just as with the eunuch, those of Cornelius' household who had believed were baptized. So baptism follows salvation. Baptism is for a believer. And God gives evidence of salvation so that the church knows who to baptize. What are the signs of the church to recognize today? Disciples who believe. The sign of a changed life. We don't see tongues of fire. And we don't hear people speaking languages that they hadn't learned. But we see their changed life. True saving faith always brings real change. There is visible evidence of Christian salvation. There's, there's new love for the brethren. There's new obedience to the word of God. There's a hatred of sin and a love of righteousness. And the fruit of the Holy Spirit, the very character of Jesus, begins to come out of the Christian's poor sinful character. We can't see the transformed heart inside, can we? But... We see the effects of that heart's transformation. Just as clearly as Peter saw flaming tongues and heard new languages being spoken. When a person's profession of faith is attended by those faithful works, the church immerses them in water as an outward sign of their inward spiritual transformation. That's believer's baptism. It's worth noting that the symbolism of baptism cleansing is not lost on the Apostle Paul. In Acts chapter 22 and verse 16, Paul recounts his own baptism when Ananias told him, get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name, meaning Jesus' name. Notice two things in Paul's own conversion. Paul's passive in his baptism. It's not something he does, it's something that's done to him. Baptism is conferred upon the transformed sinner. And two, baptism reflects the reality of salvation is brought about only by the name of Christ. That's the only way. The power of Jesus' name transforms. Paul uses this same symbolism in his letter to Titus in chapter 3, beginning in verse 3. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy... By the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Paul declares salvation is a kind, loving, saving act of God. He completely rules out any salvation based on work that we do. 
It's not based on us. How are our sins washed away? By God's act of regenerating, giving spiritual life to spiritually dead people. That's how it happens. So you can ask, does water baptism itself bring about or cause salvation? And the clear answer is no. No. Baptism isn't important because it merits or brings about salvation. That's not why it's important. It's important for all the reasons we've seen in Scripture. Especially in the joyful obedience to Christ who says, My disciples shall be baptized. Believers' baptism by immersion is more than just a ceremony, though. It's a teaching aid. It preaches a gospel. It preaches the gospel of our union with Christ. We see that in in the symbolism of believers' baptism. In Galatians chapter 20, verse 20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is I no longer who live, but Christ lives in me. And the result of Paul's union with Christ is this. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. Being crucified with Christ is what is pictured in water baptism by immersion. That's why Paul says later in Galatians chapter 3, verse 27, For all of you who have been baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. The spiritual reality is that we have been immersed in Christ as if we've put him on as clothing. Listen to how Paul describes this to the Colossians. In Colossians chapter 2, and verse 12, Having been buried... With him, Jesus, in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. To have faith in Christ is to be buried with him and raised with him. And water baptism by immersion pictures this spiritual reality. Going down into the water, dying to sin, coming up out of the water to newness of life. The most clear and robust treatment of baptism is probably Romans chapter 6 and verse 3. Turn over to Romans chapter 6. You'll want to read along with me in this. Beginning in verse 3. Paul writes to the church, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. Jesus commands his disciples to be baptized and to remember that this is what their baptism symbolizes to them. So that they can look back and say, I was baptized into Christ's death. 
Just as surely as he died because of my sins, I'm dead to sin. And just as surely as he rose from the dead, having paid for my sin, I too will rise in him. Why is that so important to remember? So that I can live with this confidence. Let's, let's read the next verse, Romans chapter 6, verse 12. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Brothers and sisters, sin no longer has mastery over you. So baptism is a ceremony that is commanded or ordained. That's why we call it an ordinance. It's ordained by Christ in which the believing disciple is immersed in water, which pictures our death and resurrection in Christ by faith. Of the two ordinances that Christ has given to his church, baptism is the initiatory ordinance, the means by which we enter the church. And the Lord's Supper is the continuing ordinance by which we continue in obedience of faith as members of the church. Let's look at how that ordinance, the Lord's Supper, is instituted, how it's begun. Jesus is the one who instituted the Lord's Supper. In Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 26, while they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples, and he said, take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken the cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of its fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. Jesus instituted the supper with his eleven disciples. This is not the Passover meal. It's the Lord's Supper, instituted by Christ. There is Old Testament background to the Lord's Supper to help us understand its significance. Just after Moses gave the law to the people, in Exodus chapter 4 we read in verse 9, actually let me back up and begin in verse 3, get a little more text. Then Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances And all the people answered with one voice, and they said, All the words which the Lord has spoken we will do. Remember this story? Then he arose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain with twelve pillars for the twelve tribes of Israel. He sent young men of the sons of Israel, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as peace offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in the basins, and the other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. So Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant, which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. This is a ratification ceremony for the old covenant that God has made with his people, Israel. God's promise to be their God, the people's promise to live as God's people, sealed by the blood of a sacrifice. 
This is starting familiar, isn't it? It's going to be repeated. We pick up in verse 9. Then Moses went up with Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and they saw the God of Israel. And under his feet there appeared to be a pavement of sapphire, as clear as the sky itself. Yet he did not stretch out his hand against the nobles of the sons of Israel, and they saw God, and they ate and drank. In the context of ratifying the old covenant, there was also a meal in the presence of God. This is sounding familiar, isn't it? It's going to be repeated. Now we have Paul's instructions to the church in the ratification of the new covenant with the church, and it's the Lord's Supper. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 23, For I received from the Lord, Paul says, that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup, also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Jesus institutes this memorial meal which points to his blood sacrifice on the cross and the ratification of the new covenant that saves. And Paul says he has received this instruction from Jesus and he's faithfully passing it on to the church as an ordinance. Just as the Lord's Supper points back to Jesus Christ on the cross, it also points us forward to his future fulfillment in Christ. Jesus hints at this in Matthew chapter 26 in verse 29 when he said, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. He's hinting at that. There's going to be a time when we're going to sit down and I'll drink this cup with you. But we actually see it in Revelation chapter 19 beginning in verse 7. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Write, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are true words of God. The church partakes of the Lord's Supper. We look back and we remember Jesus Christ's sacrifice for our salvation and the new covenant in his blood. And we look forward to eating this meal with him when he, the bridegroom, is united with us, his bride. In the new heavens and the new earth, his church. What's the meaning of this Lord's Supper? It's a remembrance. We remember a few things. We remember Christ's sacrifice. We remember the, the elements symbolize Jesus' sacrifice for us on the cross. The bread represents his body. When the bread is broken, we remember that he was broken for us. The cup, when the cup is poured out, we remember that Jesus' blood was poured out for us. We remember to proclaim, as it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death, his sin-atoning death on the cross, until he comes. The ceremony, if you will, preaches a sermon. 
We remember to participate as we take and eat, as we take and drink. By our action, we're proclaiming that we're partakers of the benefits of Christ's death. Salvation, justification, sanctification, future glorification. We share in the blessed benefits earned for us by Jesus' death. We remember that we're spiritually nourished. Just as bread and juice nourish the body, they picture the spiritual nourishment of our souls perceived by partaking of Christ himself in the Lord's Supper. Just as believers' baptism by immersion pictures our death, burial, and resurrection in Christ, Jesus designed the Lord's Supper to teach us. John writes in John chapter 6, Jesus said to his disciples, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. It's pretty graphic, isn't it? It's not his real flesh and his real blood. It's his symbolic flesh and his symbolic blood that nourishes us. It's the truth of his sacrifice that nourishes us. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so who eats me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. Jesus declares himself to be the bread of life in John chapter 6. Jesus is talking about the spiritual benefit of life for those who feed on him, the bread of life. We also remember Christ's people. When believers participate together in the Lord's Supper, we see and experience our unity with one another. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning in verse 15, I speak as to wise men. You judge what I say. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. At the Lord's Supper, we are united together with one another, joyful together, thankful together. We also remember Jesus' affirmations in the Lord's Supper. Jesus affirms his love for me in the Lord's Supper. Jesus affirms us. We do not come to an empty table, but to a table surrounded by brothers and sisters in Christ. We have a reservation at his table in the kingdom. And we affirm our faith in Jesus as we obey him and take the bread and take the cup. Joy and Sorrow, thanksgiving, and longing all mingled together in the Lord's Supper. What about the presence of Christ? What about the presence of Christ? How is he present in the Lord's Supper? Well, first, he is symbolically present in the elements. Jesus' body and blood are not the real. Jesus' body and blood are not in the bread or in the juice, neither do the bread or the juice become Jesus' body. Rather, 
The bread symbolizes the body of Christ, and the juice symbolizes the blood of Christ. And so Christ is present in the Lord's Supper symbolically in that the bread and the juice are signs pointing to him. We know who we're looking at. We're remembering John chapter 6. But I believe that in addition to that, Jesus is spiritually present with us. Spiritually present. Christ is spiritually present with his people in a special way when we partake of the bread and of the cup. When we read God's word, Christ is with us in a way, isn't he? That's different from when we pray. And when we sing hymns together, Christ is with us differently than when he's with us when we serve him through good works. And so it's different when we partake of the Lord's Supper. It's not mysticism, it's not magic, but it is different. And it is hard to explain. John Calvin writes of the Lord's Supper, It is a mystery of Christ's secret union with the devout, which is by nature incomprehensible. If anybody should ask me how this communion takes place, I am not ashamed to confess that it is a secret too lofty for either my mind to comprehend or my words to declare. You know, even if I can't explain it, I know that the Lord's Supper becomes sweeter and more meaningful each Sunday. Like many other things in the Christian life that I do not fully comprehend now, I will later. So I continue to treasure it up in my heart, like Mary did, expecting greater understanding yet to come. But we commune with Christ and with one another at the Lord's Supper table. How are these ordinances rightly administered by the church? Well, baptism is a visible sermon about salvation in Christ. The biggest misunderstanding of the ordinances, I believe, is and always has been to think that practicing them brings salvation. To think that practicing them brings salvation. Salvation does not come from being baptized. The water does nothing to you. Salvation does not come from eating the bread or drinking the juice. Salvation is and always will be by faith alone in Christ alone. That is Christ's gospel. And praise God that it is. That if we had to work for it to earn it, we would never earn it. And so it's given by grace, by faith. Baptism, therefore, is important to you if you have come to saving faith in Christ. Only then does it become important. Because it becomes a step of obedience. Because Christ commanded his disciples to be baptized. Before then, it's not the goal. It's important for this reason. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10, Therefore anyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. And it's in water baptism that we profess our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ publicly and take a stand that we're going to live the rest of our lives as his disciples, come what may, for the glory of God, right? We're to do that as disciples. But baptism is not the goal. 
Saving faith is the goal. You may have been to a church where baptism was the goal. What are you here for? I need to get baptized. You need to get baptized? You get to be baptized once you've come to saving faith. Saving faith is the goal. We need to, we need to have more baptisms. We need to have more baptisms. I was at a, I was at a, uh, uh, a convention, a church convention, and they, they sent all of the pastors back out with the idea, you need to go home and baptize more people. Our goal as a church is to baptize exactly the same number of people that the Lord brings to saving faith. And right after he has done so. And not anymore. Because the worst thing to do is to think that baptism is somehow going to save you or gain you standing, whether it's with Christ or with his church, Because the truth is, it does not. And so you would be deceived. And the worst thing in the world is to be deceived. To think you're right with God when you're not. The goal's not baptism. The goal is salvation. Come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Seek the Lord Jesus Christ and his righteousness. Everything else will be taken care of, including baptism a little bit later on. Baptism's not the goal, mom and dad. Saving faith is the goal. Raise your children in the admonition of the Lord. Keep raising them. Keep teaching them the gospel. Keep explaining Christ. Keep answering their same questions over and over and over again. Happily. From Scripture. So that they might come to a point where they give evidence of a changed life. Baptism's the easy part. Trusting in God and being patient in saving faith for us is the harder part. So dear unbeliever, pursue saving faith. Pursue Christ himself. Have a relationship with God through the Son because of his sacrifice on behalf that paid your sin debt so that you might go free. Believe in his resurrection from the dead. That is the power that transforms the heart of the sinner, regenerates him, as we've said, and makes him alive in Christ. Seek that. Seek him. Seek truth. Don't worry about baptism. The church will confer baptism on those who give evidence of saving faith. The goal is salvation. Baptism's the easy part. We just fill the tank downstairs and we go have a good time. The church that rightly practices the ordinance of baptism has salvation as its goal, not baptism. When a person's profession of faith is attended by credible evidence of a changed heart by the grace of God, baptism simply follows. The Lord's Supper is a visual sermon about unity in Christ. Every Lord's Supper, which we do every Sunday here at Christ Fellowship, you'll notice that I say some words that, that say who can come to the table and who cannot. We call it fencing the table. We're, 
We're putting up a fence around the Lord's table to allow in those who are qualified and to keep out those who are not. And so, to participate in the Lord's Supper, you must be a believer. You're to remember the Lord in this way and as He has commanded. It's a memorial. It's a memorial for you who are a believer, who have been saved by the blood of Christ and have been raised to new life and are looking forward to, by faith, the marriage supper of the Lamb to come. It is not a memorial that applies to the unbelieving person because those things have not happened yet. There's nothing to be gained by the unbeliever in partaking of the Lord's Supper except to confuse yourself on the gospel and perhaps even deceive yourself. Again, in this ordinance, salvation is the goal. Then baptism and then the Lord's Supper. You're to be a believer to participate in the Lord's Supper. You're to be a baptized believer to participate in the Lord's Supper. All believers should be baptized in obedience to Christ, right? Yes. A believer who wants to identify with Christ at his table must first identify with Christ in his baptism. That is the public profession ordinance that Christ has given to us in this way. Be baptized and then continue in the Lord's Supper. The believer must be baptized before participating in the Lord's Supper, and they should want to. That's why we fence the table that way, so that you would. These requirements for right practice follow our right understanding of the ordinances of the church. There's a reason why we do it this way, because we believe we're told to. And now, as we put in place formal membership here at Christ Fellowship, there's one more. Membership in a local church. Membership in a local church. To participate at this Lord's Supper table, you're to be a baptized believer and a member in good standing of your local church. You can be a member of Christ Fellowship Church and participate in the Lord's Supper. Or, if a person is visiting with us, they may participate in the Lord's Supper if they're a member in good standing of their own local church. Just as we want to encourage believers to be baptized, we want to encourage baptized believers to commit to a local church. If you have not, you should. A member in good standing means not under church discipline. For example, if one of us is caught in open sin and remains unrepentant, one of the early acts of church discipline is to bar that unrepentant sinner from the Lord's Supper table. That's why there must be membership, because there's a, there's a membership to be denied when someone is unrepentant and open sin. In hopes of them seeing and experiencing how their sin separates them from Christ and from Christ's people so that they would repent and be restored. So when we say, a member in good standing of your local church, it means that if you're under church discipline at your local church, don't sneak over here to partake of the Lord's Supper ordinance. Second, examine your heart for unity. Examine your heart for unity. This is the specific situation that the Apostle Paul addresses in the Corinthian church. You might want to turn, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 just because I'm going to read a bit and you might, you might feel better reading along with me beginning in verse 17. But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you 
Because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may come, become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry, and the other is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. Very specifically, the problem in the Corinthian church is that at the Lord's supper table, there is disunity and a lack of love for the brethren. So Paul repeats Jesus' words of instruction about the Lord's Supper, which we read earlier, and then he continues in verse 27. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many of you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord, so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that you will not come together for judgment." So what is the unworthy manner in which some are partaking of the Lord's Supper in Corinth? It is their ill treatment of the poor among them. It is their favoritism, and they've gathered in social cliques. It is their lack of love for one another. It is an utter display of their disunity in Christ in the church. That's the unworthy manner. And so what is it that they are to examine and judge of themselves? It is their gospel unity and their love for the brethren in their hearts. It's to see that the true meaning of the Lord's Supper is in place and is governing in that church such that Christ will be present among them. Paul is not calling them to some general self-examination of sin. And he's certainly not saying that we have to be sinless to approach the Lord's table. The Lord himself tells sinners to do it. Do this, you sinner, saved by my blood, gathered together with your church. Do this in remembrance of me. We should always be about identifying sin in our lives and repenting. We should always be doing self-examination in that way. That's not a condition specific only to the Lord's supper table. We should always be doing that. Certainly we should examine our hearts and come to the table in repentance, but what Paul is chastising the Corinthian church for is selfish, self-centered failure to recognize their unity in Christ, in the presence of Christ, at Christ's table. I mean, that's pretty ironic, right? It's pretty direct. They are not practicing for the wedding supper of the Lamb. They are not tasting the unity 
that they have in Christ Jesus through his blood. They are displaying the opposite. So yes, by all means examine yourself and repent of sin. But prepare your attitude of unity at the Lord's table. Resolve to repair your relationships before coming to the Lord's table. And come to the table with a loving heart. To commune with Jesus and his church. Why these ordinances? Why are they set before us? Like anything else, they're set before us by Christ so that we would obey them. So that we would obey them. So that we would do them. We desire to rightly practice as the ordinance of Christ out of our love for Christ. The goal of these sermons last Sunday on membership and this Sunday on the ordinances Sermons on meaningful church membership, sermons on meaningful church ordinances is to instruct you and to edify you and to help you to rightly order your life, to rightly order our church in Scripture. And in these two ordinances, Jesus Christ blesses us and blesses his church. So our duty is to believe his gospel by faith. And our desire is to be obedient to him and to identify with him in believer's baptism by immersion and to honor and commune with him and one another in the Lord's Supper. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for your word. We want to thank you for your church. We want to thank you that you have saved us by faith into your church, this body of believers, which is your body here on earth, of which you are the head. Lord, we ask that you would humble us, that we would be willing to submit to your ordinances, that we would do so humbly, happily, together, in a strong witness to the gospel, which is what they are. Lord, we, we love you. And we know that you love these ordinances in your people which you have put into place. And so help us in this way to be faithful to you in Christ's name. Amen.